0: From DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a priority for businesses who want to retain staff and prevent burnout, this is the source of information for creating sustainable and psychologically healthy workplaces in Canada. Welcome to Psych Health and Safety in Canada. And I'm really thrilled today to welcome my guest, Lana Bentley. Lana, Has um, graciously spoken to me about much of the work that she's done around inclusivity, but she has a lot more to share with us. And so I'm really glad to have her here today. And Lana, the first thing that I want to ask you is how you ever came to know the phrase psychological health and safety?
1: Uh, Sure. I, I think I happened upon it um, when I entered into leadership and started, uh, being more aware of the issues that were influencing, um, how staff were showing up to do their jobs. And when I first heard the term, I wasn't quite sure what that meant. So admittedly, I probably had some misunderstandings and misgivings. Um, but I think now, As years have passed and the conversation has grown around psychological safety, uh, I've certainly come to appreciate why it's so important, particularly in the environments where um, I've worked, healthcare, human services, social services.
0: So I'm really curious about the resistance that you had to it or the reaction that you had to it before you knew, because I think that's very common for people. So can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, well, particularly in the space that I work in. So um, I started out as a family counselor and I worked in healthcare environments that were characterized by stress and were characterized by dealing with difficult issues. And so when I first heard the term psychological safety for staff, from an employer perspective, I wasn't quite sure what that meant. (laughs) And there was a part of me that thought, but a certain amount of stress and a certain amount of working in chaos is just a part of the job. So I think that was the misunderstanding on my part. And I'm not sure if many of your, uh, through your professional travels, if you've encountered that misgiving is, whoa, (laughs) what does this mean? And am I now gonna be introducing something into my culture um, that is going to create more distance between staff and the work? versus allowing them to be able to take the risks uh, that they need to to perform the work better. So I think at first it was my misunderstanding of what this meant and worrying, that if this is an environment where the work is characterized by distress, how can I try and create a sense of safety? The two seemed incompatible at first when I didn't understand the concept
0: yeah and and honestly Lena, that is so common that psych health and safety is what are we going to walk on eggshells and all be nice all the time <laughs> and and like you say in some workplaces um, you are going to be exposed to traumatic situations it's the nature yes. of the job and in in other situations it's just the history of the work environment that it's not rainbows and unicorns. And, uh, you know, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. It is a a Mm -hmm. much rougher, but yet that doesn't preclude as Mm -hmm. you found out psych health and safety. In fact, it allows um, people to take those risks in a safer way. And can you speak about that? What did you see was the benefit in that kind of environment?
1: Well, obviously, everybody's jobs comes with their own unique risks, and there's different outcomes that you're trying to achieve, whether you're working in a retail setting, construction, research. In my case, working in human services, the work is naturally a little more challenging because the answers when you're working in mental health or family violence you know what you want the general outcome to be, Marianne. You want people to get better, <laughs> but but the application of those interventions and knowing how much and when it's it's a little bit different. You're you're kind of eyeballing it, and using evidence based practices to try and be as precise as you can in directing care. When practitioners, unfortunately get it wrong and perhaps misestimate, underestimate what's the appropriate course of action, the outcomes can be quite significant. And it wasn't until I stepped into a leadership position that I started to value the divergent voices on the team. In those settings, some of the decisions that we're making can be positively life-altering. People need, it's a matter of necessity. In those environments, people have to be able to speak up. They have to be able to trust that when they offer their opinion in front of the treatment team, knowing that sometimes they might say, hey, you know, I've read this study that said there can be an adverse event um, in 2% of cases where you use this treatment. That's not always easy to be that voice when you're working in an emergency room or an inpatient unit. But thank goodness we have those voices. And I think what psychological safety allows people to do in human service or healthcare settings is speak up during the crisis. And I know that that sometimes it's like, man, are you bringing this up? (laughs) Like We only have an hour to get through like 50 patients. The pressure in those environments is always to see people quickly and get them on their way. And when you don't have on those teams, when you don't have the space where people do feel comfortable exerting a voice of divergence or saying, hey, I think we need to double check this, particularly in acute care settings or crisis services like emergency shelters, um, it is hard to speak up when people are quickly trying to go through the steps to manage the crisis but we have to have psychologically safe environments because I have seen it with my own two eyes where sometimes that voice of divergence of, hey, have we thought of this? Um, Or, hey, um, I see it differently or that wasn't my experience in that time. It opens up the door uh, to improve decision-making and sometimes that saves a life. So in those environments especially, (laughs) it is essential for people to have that space and the confidence That they can take interpersonal risks with their colleagues. So
0: important. But how do we do it, Lana? Because in many healthcare settings, there's this hierarchy and don't you tell me, and I'm the one that has the education and I'm the one that has the credentials. And so how do you create that safe space?
1: Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I worked in a clinic that just really changed, I think, fundamentally, my trajectory professionally. It was a clinic where we started to practice mindfulness. That was big. But it was also a clinic where we had rules of engagement with our team. So we weren't just focused on patient care. We also had rules of engagement that influenced how we, how we uh, were meant to talk to each other and function. And what was really interesting about that team was they believed in order to teach skills to patients, you had to practice skills. So you have to be fully integrated in your own practice to help you focus your attention, to be able to divorce your judgments from what was actually occurring, the facts, and to be able to recognize the difference between a feeling and a fact. But the other big thing that that program required all of its practitioners to engage in was recognizing fallibility. And that was the first time I'd ever worked in an environment, Marianne, where it was recognized. Therapists, psychiatrists, nurses, social workers, we get it wrong some of the time. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, really pardon <laughs> yeah pardon me <laughs> yeah. yeah I didn't I didn't like that one <laughs> you know initially when I read that I was like fallibility pardon me and and there was also this expectation that we as a team practice mindfulness together and learn how to be in the present moment without constantly reacting to all the stimulation that was coming in our way and to just notice if I have something to say, or if I'm in a place of disagreement, if I'm in a place of uncertainty, being able to label that and communicate it to your colleagues. This was encouraged, and we actually practiced applying these skills on each other for two hours a week. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. Now I can tell you, Marianne, it really, really shaped me. But when I was in it, I, I'll be honest, I thought, this is so weird. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, for sure, because we're taught that we need to get it right. Education is -hmm. about striving for 100%. And uh, I always remember reading uh, William Shafir's book, um, uh, Putting on the White Coat, and talking about doctors who get trained through their education to never let them see you sweat, never admit to a mistake and how that impacts their um, ineffectiveness, like how they become less effective because they're so busy putting on that white mm. coat and not being open that they make mistakes that cost lives. And that's the, the, the issue I think um, at the highest level is that it can uh, cost lives but even for those who are in the helping professions, it can impact lives significantly. Yeah. So how did you get from being afraid to making um, yeah. uh, making a mistake, to being afraid to not admitting that you're making mistakes?
1: <laughs> it was a 180, really. Right. <laughs> um, I think it was because the leadership of that area uh, created a context where in order to fit in, there was a requirement of authenticity, self-reflection, and as well, practicing what you preach. And so we would meditate together. We would do breathing exercises together. And that was how we opened and closed meetings. And that was how we opened and closed sessions with patients. But I think what was more important, Marianne, was that the leadership of that area understood the uniqueness of that department (laughs) relative to all others. And it was written down. It was an expectation. It was a part of my orientation that this is how we do it here, is we're open with each other. Um, I, I think that sometimes sometimes unspoken norms are strengthened when they're spoken into existence. And so there's a difference between, <sighs> I, I think I've always managed to work in supportive environments where after the fact, Marianne, if I was being really hard on myself, People would say, oh, I really wish, I really wish you would have come to me because, you know, it, it stinks now to hear that you were struggling with that all this time. And, you know, you have to look back and say, well, I wonder why I didn't. But when I was in this particular department, the reason that I did is because I was told on an ongoing basis, um, I'd love to hear from you. How are you doing? Through the repetitive nature of those interactions, I knew. Not it was, the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was, it was it was explicitly explained and reviewed and I saw other people doing it in the meeting. Yeah, And that made it okay for me to try. And then when I, when I eventually got into leadership, I then had my own learning curve, but I was able to recognize the brilliance uh, and the simplicity Um, of of what I had been taught in that environment. And and I think, you know, it's interesting that you bring up um, just in terms of healthcare and human services, like I'm just thinking about child protection workers, like people where it's just such high stakes and and you're constantly operating, (laughs) trying to be as precise as you can. I, I learned that when you're focused on getting it right, doing it perfectly, I think that can motivate for some, but then when a mistake is made, your energy is focused on, but I really need to structure this in my mind that I got it right. (laughs) And, and, and I think that the difference between that versus being in a psychologically safe environment is if I can just be fallible and be open about that, I can very quickly receive new information that helps me course correct faster.
0: Well, and that idea Um, I remember being uh, in child welfare, but I was in my mid thirties and most of the people that were in it were in their early twenties. I had already had children. And so I questioned a lot and it made um, the other younger people that were with me uncomfortable thinking that I was going to get in trouble because Mm -hmm. I was questioning authority But it didn't happen like that. They actually started to think about, oh, is this the best thing? Should we consider it? And so, but it was just the difference in experience that I felt, well, what have I got to lose? Whereas when I was younger, there's not a chance. But I have to repeat something you said, Lana, because for me, um, it's just profound in the way you said it. And what you said is, when unspoken norms are spoken they are strengthened into existence and that that to me makes so much sense that we just have to say the things that we're assuming others already know or believe and as leaders especially i think that's so important amazing so how did you so I'm thinking about the mindfulness right and I'm thinking about some of the work environments where the idea that we're going to open a session with mindfulness is going to get eye rolls and (laughs) snorts and you gotta be kidding me um how do
1: you yeah how how do you deal with that um yeah it's like you've been to some of these meetings with me (laughs) (laughs) Was that you behind that potted plant? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Well, you know, isn't it, isn't it interesting? Um, just, I guess, how you introduce new information to, into your team. The, the, the thing about mindfulness, I'll be honest, Marianne, when I started practicing it, I didn't like it either. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's
1: and- beautiful.
0: Great. So now you can
1: relate to all of those folks who say the same thing hundred percent. It's not difficult for me to empathize (laughs) on this one. But the reason is, is because I'll be honest, I thought this is a waste of time. And I remember the first few times I did it, my, my then supervisor, what did you notice? I know here's the thing, Marianne, she never asked me if I, if I enjoyed it. She never asked me if I liked it. She always asked me, what did you notice? And I'd say that I hate it, and I'm distracted, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm bored, and my mind is racing. And she'd say, okay, then you did the exercise correctly, because you were able to notice what was going on for you in the moment." And the first few times of like, "Drat," <laughs> like she's one me. But then what I what I came to recognize, Marianne, was it's not about liking or disliking; it's about being riveted to the now. It's about being fully present for whatever I'm doing. And, you know, when I went to therapy school, they taught us, you need to empathize. You need to be unconditionally, uh, there needs to be unconditional positive regard, warmth. You know, you need to be nice to the, to the clients you're talking about. And, and I think looking back now, what I know now that I didn't know then is the reason my niceness didn't fully work sometimes is because I was distracted. Yeah. I was thinking a hundred other thoughts before the client could even finish their thought. I was busy trying to generate a question. I'd be in team meetings thinking not about the case I needed to present, but what I needed to do next, or man, I have, like I saw my voicemail was blinking, like the phone was blinking. So now I'm, I I didn't realize how all over the map and scattered and divided my thoughts and attention were Marianne.
0: Well, that mindset that uh, constantly thinking constantly judging constantly yeah. uh, analyzing gets rewarded all the way through school gets rewarded oh, yeah. in some um, types of workplaces yeah but you know you're you're talking about how it helped you in the work that you were doing in the mental health field think about how what you just described can help in a safety-sensitive position, can help, you know, in energy, in mining, in construction, yes. how it can help in customer service, right? The difference uh, between being present and not.
1: You know, when, when you talk about that difference, um, and and I don't know what your memories of when you first heard this term were, but multitasking, mm. And I'm sure you had the experience very. I shouldn't assume, but I'm I'm gonna guess you probably worked in spaces where being a multitasker was considered a really positive characteristic. And what mindfulness asks you to do is single task, which, which I know for some employers, they're gonna go, what? <laughs> but the quality of work that you're able to produce when you are fully integrated into the moment is better than when you're multitasking. And the other thing that I learned through practical experience and through watching other staff and when I became a leader and a supervisor, <clears throat> single tasking tends to help you get the task done, right? The first time. Absolutely. That's my experience. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but I, you know, I, I think about that term multitasking. And when you say it's rewarded, when you appear to be managing, juggling many things at once, I, I do agree with you that multitasking has up until this point been seen as the preferred way of doing work.
0: So, you know, years ago, Lana, I learned that the brain cannot actually multitask, that we're doing quick task switching, and we Mm -hmm. lose our focus as we're switching from, you know, from email to the report writing to the phone call to the meeting. Mm -hmm. But what I just got for the first time last week, um, listening to Dr. Brené Brown talk to Dr. Jha, is that task switching doesn't just happen when we change our focus from one task to another it happens when we change our focus from internal thoughts to Mm -hmm. the task at hand and so what i thought was focusing on the task at hand never was Because I'm always thinking about what else I have to do, always thinking, as you say, when I'm talking to somebody about the next question, always thinking about. So I was never (laughs) (laughs) single-tasking. And and now that I understand it differently, I can do so much better.
1: Yeah. and, And it's interesting that you talk about that internal and external world. Because I think when we're working... I don't know if people give themselves permission to notice their internal experience, because the the driving motivation is, well, I'm at work. I gotta think about work now. <laughs> but wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> so thank so you, Doctor Seuss. <laughs> yeah, all of this is coming to work, <laughs> and my internal experience. I brought that to work too, and and the ability I think to notice when I'm toggling between. Um, those two areas of attention is mission critical to your point. And and I think what mindfulness does is it gives you permission to just notice in the same way that my supervisor would say, I don't want to know if you liked it, (laughs) the meditation. I just want to know what did you notice when you focused inward and you did pay attention to your thoughts. And I I noticed that not only was my brain busy, Marianne, but (sighs) highly judgmental self berating, (sighs) clinging to things that had already happened. (laughs) And I get it. Our brains are generated uh, like that's their job is to think. Uh, But when I started to notice what I was thinking about, I was really mired down in thoughts that um, didn't necessarily set me up for success. And I had to start asking, like, where's that coming from? And And, and I think.
0: Sorry, no, I want you to continue to say, because I think most people can relate to that. But then the question is, okay, I'm doing that, Lana. Now what?
1: Now how do I, I change that? Well, <clears throat> what, what it took me a while to learn through mindfulness and, and through having some really strong mentors was that, so Marianne, what I did was I, I rookie move. <laughs> like, well, I'm noticing I'm having a really strong reaction to that thing. So now I'm going to try and control and manage that thing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I got it like 25% correct. (laughs) And so what mindfulness invited me to do was say, okay, so before you try and over control what's going on in your work environment, which isn't always possible, and then becomes even more frustrating when you're trying to micromanage. Um, When I was a manager, I found I did have a tendency towards that uh, because of my own experience level and my own (laughs) misunderstanding of, you know, you need to manage through other people. Um, When I would notice these urges to then control things and try and problem solve things that I really couldn't. Um, then I got to the stage of mindfulness where it's sort of, you, you toggle between change versus acceptance, which is, is this a moment in my work day where I need to, you know, I guess what we teach kids to do sit on my hands and not make the circumstance worse. So I guess the adult version of that is like a breathing exercise <laughs> or, or just leaving my office to go get a coffee. Do you know what I mean? To just settle. And just ride the wave of whatever that difficult moment is without saying or doing something that's going to create more heartache Um, or is this a circumstance where I could if I collected my thoughts took a break and focused my attention Marianne problem solve but either way I need to stop what I'm doing and so learning to press pause and learning to 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 get enough information to determine do I need to just ride the wave and surf the urge to act Do I need to just let this strong emotion pass or is this a situation where I can problem solve like that was the turning point for me was just even stopping enough to say is this a change or an acceptance moment in my work day, because I didn't know the difference for quite a while.
0: (laughs) yeah I I think it's even G says, are you willing to let the mud settle. And I think about, you know, you go into water and you stir all this up. Well, now are you going to look into the water to see what's in there? You're not going to see clearly. You're not going to think clearly. And so that that metaphor of just staying still to let the mud settle so you can see more clearly is a great one. Lenny, you talked about making uh, a rookie mistake that many of us make out of fear right? Yeah. We're going to micromanage people because we're so afraid they're <clears throat> going to mess up and it's going to reflect poorly on us that we didn't manage them. Yep. <laughs> um, can you talk a bit to those leaders who may be making that mistake first to what it looks like and then what to do about it?
1: Well, I, I think in terms of what it looks like, it never looks like a problem. <laughs> well, it's always to the leader no yeah (laughs) exactly yeah exactly I think there's always like I think our brains do a really good job of justifying and re you know reframing why we're doing it and and I needed to do it you know like I I needed to come sit in on that just to make sure that's me being supportive and taking an interest in in your work but um I, I think I, I think fundamentally you know where it comes from is um, I, I always work from the position of and and I think you and I share some stuff in our professional backgrounds and you try to be strengths based and you try to have the most charitable, kind, um, forgiving interpretation of people's behavior. And so I, I think what it looks like usually is is from the, the perspective of the leader. Uh, we're just trying to make sure things get done well. Uh, we're just trying to make sure that we deliver on, on whatever those KPIs are. Um, looking back, I would say it probably just looked super annoying and irritating to my staff and, and just like just anxiety <laughs> riddled manager or, you know, um, and it probably looked like not being able to negotiate appropriate distance and closeness with the employees in knowing how much autonomy um, to support them in exercising versus how much direction you know to 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 provide um and i think that the rookie mistake for me was believing that i could any anything that was problematic could be controlled and and where it got better for me was when i realized even if the thing whatever it is that is there maybe i can't problem solve it but i can change how i relate to it and when i when i focused more on how am i going to change how i relate to that moment there was a real freedom Um, that came up for me. So whether I was dealing with an employee who was struggling or an issue, um, you know, wait lists, budgetary, whatever it is, uh, you know, sadly, mindfulness didn't allow me to eradicate the budgeting process from my areas, (laughs) but it did. (laughs) But it did allow me to change how I was relating to that process and the things that I found difficult in the role Um, I would tend to think about, I would tend to have a lot of judgmental thoughts about, and that would drive emotions and corresponding behaviors. The things that we don't like doing in the workday can become bigger, badder and scarier and before long we're either finding ways to creatively avoid them or to delegate them out to get rid of them, or we try and make things disappear to the degree possible. So pushing meetings as far as we can, delaying actually sitting down in front of my computer to get the task done, withdrawing from conversations from the person I report to because I felt you know, embarrassed or overwhelmed. So when I was able to notice, you know, I'm having, like, I'm having a big reaction to this process. I was able to settle myself and then ask, okay, what do I need to do? Can't sit on my hands with the budget or my performance review forms. So what do I need to do to make the process more pleasant, more efficient? And how do I ask for help going back to the fallibility piece?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. When you started to change from, micromanaging to um this new and improved you where you could uh, settle and you could uh, find a better way to do it how did your staff react did they just start to slack off and say yeah she's letting up on
1: us we don't have to work that hard <laughs> yeah weekend starts wednesday <laughs> um you know no not, not 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 at all and and i think that um I, I think that when I was able to just change how I was relating to those problems, I mean, I think all we, all anybody wants is a leader who's gonna role model and live those preferred ways of being um, on the team. And so I think when people were able to see me applying those sorts of skills and practices, um, being a bit more vocal, if I was feeling overwhelmed or dysregulated or like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't do something right now, this second, do you know what I mean? Like take a break. Uh, Like, you know, uh, there's somebody who sometimes calls me when, when she's upset with a work issue and she's like, I'm going to send that email now. And I'm like, nah, "Nah, I don't think you are. I said, I think, I think you're going to hang up from this conversation. Like, let's revisit tomorrow. Um, I I just, I just found that um, a, the relationships I was able to have with people on my team were richer and by richer, I mean, I was getting more of the story. So not just having people tell me what they thought I wanted to hear or could tolerate, but people telling me their full experience of what was going on, which is just better for so many reasons. Uh, but it also created a context where people were able to figure out for themselves how they might like to change the way they relate with um, challenging um, aspects of their job. So, no, it wasn't anarchy uh, at all. <laughs> it was it was authentic. Uh, it was more comfortable. And I think as well, the quality of work was better. Yeah. And that's, I
0: think that's the hardest part for the leaders who had the old school training about command and control, keep, keep them under your thumb, because otherwise, uh, you know, you don't know what's going to happen is that it's the opposite is that when people trust you, when they will share the truth with you up front, you can problem solve with them, things don't become a crisis. You used a term that I think some listeners won't be familiar with. And I'm wondering, especially in the uh, the case of leadership, can you explain what self-regulate means?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I guess I'll I'll maybe just compare and contrast dysregulation with regulation. So. When a person is dysregulated, it means that they're experiencing an emotion to such a degree of intensity that they're not able to focus their attention, problem solve, or assess a situation accurately. And the situation could be their own internal experience, as you referenced earlier, or even to be able to describe what's happening around them. And when a person is dysregulated, they can really struggle to self-soothe. So even just knowing how to take the intensity that they're experiencing from like a 10 out of 10 to maybe even just an eight. The flip of that is that when somebody is regulated, um, and I know if we have people from energy or or different professions, they're like, do you mean licensure? (laughs) Like being (laughs) in good standing with my professional association? Yes, that too. (laughs) But but when when you're emotionally regulated, you are able to take a step back from the intensity and not let the intensity govern your behavior. So when you're regulating, you're able to say, whew, like I I was not happy in that meeting when so-and-so spoke that way to me. However, I was able to recognize that and turn the volume down or the temperature down on the emotion. I am able to self-soothe, I am able to better align my thoughts, and I'm able to come to a place where it's not about like, you, you can't run away from your emotions, because I know some people say, well, I just turn my emotions off. I don't think that's entirely possible, but you can turn the volume or the temperature down and you can notice your emotions without reacting to them and acting. It's like, oh man, like I'm, I'm really angry. So I'm just going to slam my door on the way out of the meeting. Um, no, there's probably a better way to exit that, that workplace encounter. So you can be vex, but you might say, you know what, guys, I think I need a break. <laughs> so the emotion is still there. You're just not acting on it. So I think when you're emotionally regulated, it's not to say that you're completely divorced from all feeling, but it's not driving you. You're noticing it.
0: Yeah. Um, How many times, Lana, have you seen, because you you mentioned the person who says, you know, I just uh, manage my emotions, I'm fine. But what they actually are doing is shoving it down so that the intensity, the passive aggressiveness that comes off of those people, you can feel it when you're within six feet of them. And it's like, you you know, can take your breath away. Um, Those people think they're just talking without emotion <laughs> like, ah! yeah. Can, yeah can you speak a bit to those folks about the impact they actually have when they think they have it under control yes and so
1: i'm gonna do that and i'm also gonna say i i I don't totally understand it like like I, I, I'm i quite calm, but I but I, I think I think those around me can still tell what my emotions are usually because I'm that irritating person who just says them. <laughs> I, know, I notice I'm I notice I'm feeling really anxious right now or whatever the case might be. But so I think Marianne, for those people who like the Dr. Spocks of the world, if you will, um... <laughs> There, there is absolutely a time and a place for those folks, and certainly when I'm engaging with the gentleman who does my taxes every year, uh, I'll be honest, I, I sort of take comfort in the fact that he is fairly analytical, and he leads with his reason when we engage. The challenge with being a Dr. Spock all the time is that I think it can inadvertently create distance between those and you around you. Uh, it can, re- can create distance on teams, and it, it's not about because I, I think people have different set points emotionally, and there are some people where that is their baseline, and they're a little more comfortable. But a certain amount of emotional expression and emotional literacy is required to sustain relationships, you know. And I would also say that even for the Doctor Spocks of the world who try and lead with reason and try and say, I have no emotions whatsoever. Not only will that create challenges, I think, in having meaningful relationships with your colleagues at work, but I think it also cuts you off from yourself. And there are many reasons that that can happen, right? If somebody has come from a place in their life where, uh, those around them potentially haven't managed strong emotions very well, and perhaps they've been exposed to violence in the home or, uh, people who manage their strong emotions, um, misusing substances, or their moods and their manner of speech was just so unpredictable, but it was kind of scary to be around. I can totally appreciate how one might adopt the stance of, then the solution is to have no emotions at all. <laughs> uh, not really. It's somewhere in between. It's somewhere. It's somewhere in between. And when we numb our emotions, it makes it harder for people to relate to us. And again, I think as, I, as we talked about earlier, we need information, we need to know, um, not just when there's crisis, but just if there's something we need to know, we need to know it. <laughs> and, and the only way people are gonna feel comfortable engaging with us is if there is some affect um, and some ability to connect on that level. But I, I think as well, for people who cut themselves off like that, there's almost a numbness that exists internally, The long-term I don't think is very healthy either. Right, that they're not actually experiencing
0: a life in its fullness. I'm so inspired, Lana, by folks that I know that are on the autism spectrum, who mm. take very careful um, time to learn social cues, to be able to ask, to be able yeah. to think about their language and how they express themselves in order to get um, a response that they want that they really put a lot of um, effort into it. And I watch that and think, I can learn so much from what you're doing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, Now you were also talking um, about numbness and that inability to feel the world. And I think that ties into the issue of burnout, which of course is... Mm -hmm. Being experienced at higher rates than it ever has um, in the workplace and the things that you've already talked about, authenticity, being mindful, you know, being, a, uh, being able to connect with other people, all are preventative <clears throat> of burnout. What else would you say to folks today that are just going through the motions, feeling that numbness is better than exhaustion and pain? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, well, if I could be radically authentic, uh, it won't work. <laughs> um, longer term, it, it's just, it's not viable to think I'm going to put on my suit of armor every day. And and that's how I'll, I'll survive. I, I think short term Marianne, possibly, like I, I certainly don't want to dismiss that. Uh, but longer term, um, it's just not sustainable. And and I think in addition to all the the great coping tools and and preventative strategies you talked about, I I think there are just some basic lifestyle choices that perhaps we've um, become less attentive to over the last few years and with good reason. I I get that now that everybody's working from home, the ability to even discern work time from private time and to separate and compartmentalize, we just haven't had the same uh, luxury. Uh, for those whose worlds have sort of collided. Uh, But I think other things that people can do, and I know this might sound really basic, but we do need to get back to how we treat all of this. Sleep hygiene. Having worked in mental health um, on the front lines, uh, that was one of the biggest pieces of advice we gave to people was sleep hygiene. So adequate nutrition, adequate rest, taking medications as prescribed, making sure that throughout the day you're properly hydrated with water. You know, some of the most complex um, mental health concerns I ever worked with, the first question we would ask people who were in the throes of crisis and saying, I'm about to do something impulsive was, have you eaten today? (laughs) Have you had any water? Because if, if you got up, didn't have any water, but you took in some nicotine, do you know what I mean? All the, all the blinds are, you know, you're, in, you're sitting in darkness in your home. Like, like fundamentally, there are just some things that we know the body responds to. And when the body responds to them, it reduces your vulnerability to really strong emotions and becoming dysregulated. And part of that, part of how you can become the CEO in your own wellness and you could do it today for anybody who's watching, is to make sure that you're fueling your body properly. Whether it's mental health or even AA, they talk about halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and how when you're compromised in those ways, it can sometimes put the finger on the scale and tip it towards impulsive, destructive behavior. Same messaging for me is if folks do need to be more mindful and aware of are, am I investing in my body in all those ways that reduce the likelihood of me being thrown into crisis or chaos um, emotionally? And and part of that, and, and I know it sounds so basic, but sleep hygiene, adequate nutrition, adequate hydration, and even Marianne doing one thing competently a day gives your brain the cueing that I can manage and I'm a capable individual who can face the world. So whether that's making it to the gym, whether it's following through on, uh, I did this a few weeks ago, I hung pictures in my living room and I'm not like, I hate that sort of stuff, Marianne, but but man, did I feel good when they were all hung. Look at me. Oh my gosh, I had a level and a (laughs) pencil. But truly, I felt so good. And my mom stopped by after and she's like, you finally got the photos up. And I was like, I know. But I was on cloud nine for the rest of the day because I was able to just knock something off that list that normally I'm not great at. But now I have three really awesome uh, pictures in my living room. So the point being doing one thing competently a day. I know it sounds silly, but you know what, folks? Principles for treating folks who've been severely traumatized, one of the underlying principles, having a sense of competency and achievement. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and you know, and pushing yourself like you did yeah. to do something that you're not as um, it's not easily competent because you could say, oh, yeah, well, I, you know, did whatever it is I work at and I was competent. But when you're doing something that you don't know how to do and That's you take right. the time. Yeah. And then the only thing I'd add to your list, because I think it's a, a beautiful reminder, is to do something that fills you up. And I know, right. Lana, when we work with. um Folks who are dealing with depression, they forget that anything ever filled them up. And so our advice is write out that list when you're well, put yeah. it someplace where you'll see it and then do it. Even if it's not bringing you joy at the moment, do it anyways, because it can remind you about what brings you joy. So Absolutely. That- That's great. Now, uh, you have so much um, wisdom to share and we're running close to the end (laughs) of our time. So I want to ask you first, if um, you could describe for people what it feels like to work in a psychologically healthy and safe workplace, what would you see? What would you feel if you were in one? I think what I would
1: see is a feedback loop where people are able to give and receive feedback without it disrupting or short-circuiting the system. So that doesn't mean that the conversations are all pleasant, but they're real. And people have the resilience and the capability to actively participate in those discussions. Like, I think that's what I'd be seeing. And as a leader, I think what I'd also be seeing is, and people are there to have the conversations. (laughs) So, you know, I I think when I've been in psychologically unsafe work environments, uh, unfortunately there are some pretty clear indicators. Sometimes people vote with their feet. Sick time, absenteeism, finding ways to distance themselves from the work or those on the team. And I think the opposite is true when you're in a psychologically safe environment. But but I do think one of the things I'd be seeing is that people are actively participating in conversations where there's a diverse set of ideas that are being presented. Some that are very much in alignment and some that are more of a risk. And they might be just slightly divergent from what the majority of folks on the team are saying, but people are capable of having the conversations, new information is integrated, and overall I think some of those clear markers of wellness are are, are there. So people are at work, they're doing the work, they feel confident, they're voicing that they have the tools to succeed. And I would also say, uh, because this was an issue that I learned about working with nurses, was the phenomenon of presenteeism where people are coming to work even when they should not. I think in a psychologically safe environment, people have the ability to tell you what's true and we can tolerate sometimes you need to be here and maybe you need to take a break and rest up so you can bring your best version of yourself to work. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's, that's what I've noticed when I've been in psychologically safe environments. Um, and I think uh, certainly you know throughout my career, I've had the opposite experience as well. Uh, And I think when I've worked in psychologically unsafe environments, I do want to be clear, though, I, I don't think that the like I don't think people would have told you that it was unsafe. What they would have told you though, it was just really busy or it's just a demanding environment. Remember how I said earlier, (laughs) like our brains have this really awesome way of of just recasting it in a more favorable or justifiable light. So I think in, in the times looking back when I was in psychologically unsafe work environments, I think we wouldn't have said it was unsafe. We would have just said it was busy or that's par for the course or that's the nature of the work. And I can now say confidently, regardless of how demanding your work environment is, this concept is still applicable because it's it's not just a definition that we tell staff Well, make sure this is present or think about it a lot it's a doing in a psychologically safe environment people are doing things that let you know it is safe and so even in the most demanding of environments like I don't think you can make to your point, you know, if you're working in demanding environments in drilling or mining or or operating huge vehicles, uh, like I said earlier, (laughs) I wasn't able to get rid of the budgeting (laughs) from my job, (laughs) but I could change how I related and showed up in the face of the demands of my job. And I think in a psychologically work environment, it's not about being able to totally remove everything that's difficult, uh, but you're still able to do things that make the environment More affirming and productive and effective and safer.
0: Yeah, very good. Thank you so much for that. Um, Lana, any last bits of advice that you'd have for people? Any last words
1: of wisdom before we wrap up? (laughs) Sure. Um, Your feelings are valid, they're not facts. (laughs) Your feelings tell you how you are, not what you are. This too shall pass. (laughs) And just breathe.
0: Beautiful, beautiful words of wisdom to live by. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to thank you once again. I honestly could talk to you for days and days <laughs> and uh, never get bored, never run out of things to talk about. But likewise, Mary. Likewise. Yeah. So this uh, podcast will be on the Flourish DX uh, YouTube site uh, to watch and see our <laughs> face expressions, but it's also on the psych health and safety ca- in Canada um, Sorry, psychhealthandsafetycanada.com website. And uh, there will be clips of your brilliance on LinkedIn as well. And for sure, I'll tag you in that. So <laughs> thank thanks, you. Thanks. Thanks again, Lena. And uh, uh, have a great day. You too. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast to stay up to date with the best content on workplace mental health in North America. Subscribe
1: wherever you listen to podcasts and join the Flourish DX community at www.flourishdx.com.